And tonight we are going to be focusing on the priority of learning. And uh, first of all, well, we'll give, I'll keep talking, we'll give Ike a minute to get back over to the, the computer. You he, he can take your time, man. We're in, we're in no rush. But yeah, we're, I'm excited. I, uh, I, I've had the pleasure of not being able to be here to listen, but I, I've been able to p- catch up on, on what's been being taught, and, and I love it. It's been great. What's, uh, the word that's been brought forth, and I, I, I've enjoyed it, and I've not even been here, so I can only imagine. Hope you all are enjoying it as much as I am. Uh, while we're waiting, you can go ahead and flip your Bibles over to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to stay mostly there for a little while. But before that, uh, as, as Pastor Sam likes to do, we're going to go ahead and, and go over our, our verse, our keynote verse for the series. And I believe that's found in Matthew chapter 6. There it is up on the screen. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. Yeah, that's right. We're, everyone's supposed to join in. You guys remembered? I didn't. Let's try it again all together. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And I, I love this verse, and I love this idea that we need to be seeking him first and putting our priorities right. Everyone, we always like to start out the new year with... Uh, New Year's resolutions and and things like that. And I am just as guilty as anyone with starting resolutions and not finishing them or quitting after like three weeks. Anyone else do that, have that problem? I, I A little too often. And so I love the idea of getting, rather than making a resolution, but getting our priorities straight and starting out the new year, starting with first things first. And uh, there's no better place to start than the kingdom and, and the seeking the things that God has for us. Well, let's go ahead and we'll dive right into the priority of learning. Now, this, this is, I couldn't have asked Pastor Sam for a better one. He kind of divvied out the, the uh, topics, and I could not have asked for a better one because this is one of my biggest Things. I love to learn. I love to read. I love to study. I love school, which is very unusual. My wife does not. She could not wait to graduate school. I actually would help her take classes for her sometimes because, to help her graduate because I want, no, I didn't take classes for you. Off, off the, on the record, I didn't take classes for you. Online classes, just one. I helped her out a little bit. It was, I was a political science major, and it was a political science class that she needed for an elective, and, and so I helped her out a little bit, a lot of bit. But that's okay. I just, I love to learn. I love studying. I love learning. And so this uh, particular priority is a really good thing. So who's, who's got Philippians chapter 3 pulled up? Philippians chapter 3, here's how we're going to start this. Rather than uh, talk about why learning is a priority right off the bat, I figured we'd just dive in and learn something. How's that sound? We're going we're, we're to do the thing. We're going to go ahead and do it. That's a, and this is a little bit different than the others, so I feel like I have a little bit of freedom here. So we're actually going to learn something tonight, and then we're going to talk about why learning should be a priority. So here we are in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same... Th- Wait, that's not right. For me... Oh, yeah, it is. Okay. Uh, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, uh, we're going to stop there. Actually, back up one slide. We're going we're to hang on that slide for a second. So what Paul is talking about here in chapter 3, he in that first verse, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, that word that we translate as rejoice is very, very similar to the word that is translated in verse 3 as confidence. And I think they're kind of in a different color. It's, hard, it's kind of hard to see, but I, I put rejoice and confidence in different colors so you can see. And the words there that we translate as rejoice and confidence are very similar in the Greek. And they could be translated as uh, rejoice in something 
boast in something or have confidence in something. They all mean the same thing. And so Paul here is contrasting rejoicing in the Lord versus rejoicing or having confidence in ourselves here. And he's, he's making the, the contrast there. He's showing us the difference, saying what we should do, rejoice in the Lord, have confidence in the Lord, boast in the Lord, but yet in our flesh have no confidence. So he has that little contrast there. <clears throat> Excuse me. So moving on to verse 4. Though I myself, and here I love, I love Paul. Though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, he says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. What Paul's saying here is he's going through, as he's just referring to having confidence in the Lord versus having confidence in the flesh and how we shouldn't have confidence in the flesh, he comes in and says, if anybody had any reason to be confident in themselves, it's me. Because uh, by biologically, by his upbringing, by his zeal, by his education, everything about Paul was literally, he, he gave himself the, the name, the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, there are a lot, of, at this time, there were a lot of Jews, but very few that could trace their lineage back to the original tribes of Israel. A lot of people had been grafted in, whether they were converts or their, their own nations kind of were adopted into the nation of Israel. Very few people had, could say this, that I'm, I'm an Israelite, naturally born Israelite. I'm even a tribe of, of the tribe of Benjamin. I know exactly what tribe my family comes from. And his edu- he was a Pharisee, which we think most of the time a Pharisee is kind of like a dirty word because of what we read and how Jesus interacted with the Pharisees. But in that time, a Pharisee was a very respected individual. And so uh, Paul was very respected in the community. He could trace his lineage back to the nation of Israel. And uh, he says, under as, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and this is interesting, a persecutor of the church, and then right after that, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, those two things don't seem to coincide. When uh, Upon first initial read, if you're a persecutor of the church, surely you cannot also consider yourself blameless. If you're killing people, surely I'm, he couldn't be blameless. But yet, he was under the law. Now, I've always thought of Paul as... A, a villain initially. Well, let me rephrase. I've always thought of Saul as a villain. Now, we, when we look at the story of Saul, he, he was the one who started the stoning of Stephen. If, uh, when you understand the, the culture of that day, it says in, in Acts chapter 7 that Paul or Saul, a young man Saul, was holding the coats or standing by the coats of the people who were stoning Stephen in the book of Acts. Well, what that meant is he was the one who brought the charges. He was the one who started the whole thing to get Stephen killed, okay? And so Saul, at this time, he seems like a villain. He's a bad guy. He's evil. And anywhere in Scripture, evil is oftentimes punished, not given reward and turn and you know taking someone who who is does pure evil and turning them into you know the guy who wrote two-thirds of the books of the new testament and so saul's it's it's so he's such a weird case and i always thought it was so weird that god would take this bad guy and then turn around and turn him to good because you think into the in the old testament certainly evil was always punished jezebel even amongst the israelites achan and and uh you know, all, you, we could go on and on and on about how evil, evilness is always punished. And even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they, they were part of the way of the church, and yet they still were, God killed them in, in an instant. And so evil is 
always punished. So how did Paul manage to kind of get off? And not, not just get off, but turn around and become this great man. Well, something is interesting about Paul is we have to know where he was coming from. And I, I'm, we're going to take a little detour here into the book of Numbers, and I'm going to show you a little bit of background of Paul to put Saul, rather, to put Saul in context, okay? And we're going we're gonna to figure out a little bit about Saul tonight. So Numbers chapter 25 uh, it says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed, their, bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Next verse. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, and this is so cool. He rose up, well, I think it's cool. As a guy, I think it's cool. He rose up, left the congregation, took a spear in hand, and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through their belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And I think there's a little bit more. Yes. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous. The New King James translated it as he was zealous with my zeal, New King James, or jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous or zealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Paul was a student of the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. He probably had most of it committed to memory. So he certainly would have known the story of Phineas and how the zeal of the Lord to purify the nation of Israel gave you permission to do whatever it took to purify Israel. See, the kingdom of God is not a New Testament gospel concept. It's an Old Testament concept. It is rooted and grounded in Old Testament. And Saul desired the kingdom of God. He wanted it more than anything. And he says in Philippians that he, as to zeal, I persecuted the church. Concerning righteousness in the law, I was blameless. So Saul, he wa what he wanted was good. He wanted the kingdom of God to come. And so when he saw these Jews that are supposed to be awaiting the coming Messiah, turning away from the faith and following this man, Jesus, he was not thinking, oh, I, I want to go kill all those people. He was thinking, I need to make sure that Israel is pure. Because we need the kingdom of God to come. We need to be rescued from this Roman oppression. And we need purity. We need all of these, these people that are turning away to be gone. So in his zeal, in his passion to attack the church, it was not out of an evil desire, but it was because he understood purity of Israel, and he understood that the kingdom of God had to come, it was just a misguided zeal. He was going full force and hard just like he should have been. He was just going in a different direction, in the wrong direction. And so when we read in, in Acts chapter 9, when Saul has his conversion, 
we think of that oftentimes as the, the moment that, that Saul became a Christian. I would argue that Saul probably didn't look at it that way. Saul, Saul saw it as the moment that he realized the direction that he should have been going. So he no longer was pursuing, or he, he, he was still, from Saul to Paul and into the book of Acts and into all the letters that we have from him, his heart in terms of his passion and his zeal never changed. He was just refocused onto the truth of who the Messiah was and who Jesus was. And so when we think of Saul and we think, how could God take this villain, this evil thing, and not, not punish him, and not just not punish him, but turn him into this great apostle, how does that work? Well, when we put Saul in context and we understand what Saul saw and what Saul believed, we see that he wasn't the evil person we all thought he was. He was trying his best to do what was right. But in his own power, he was killing the way. But then when he got in line with Christ, when he met, he had an encounter with Christ, it repositioned him, it refocused him. And then he was able to go on and become Paul that we all know and love. And so back to our, um, just real quick a second before we hit that, that third little point, back to Philippians for just a second. When Paul is saying, I had all the reasons anyone could have. I have more reason than anyone to boast in the flesh because I was doing it. When nobody else was, I was doing it. I was zealous. I was the Phineas of today. But then he says, but I can't boast in that. I can only boast in Christ because when we boast in our own flesh, we start killing what we're, we're, we start fighting against what we should be fighting Four. And so we see that not only was Saul rooted in this concept of the kingdom of heaven, which is rooted in the Old Testament, but the rest of Paul's theology all throughout the New Testament is also rooted in the Old Testament because that was what his knowledge was. You read Romans and go read Romans and then go read Isaiah. And if you and if you don't think Paul knew Isaiah inside and out, you're crazy. It's, I mean, there, there's so many things that Paul takes directly from the Old Testament, but it was shrouded. It was, it was kind of kept in mystery. And then through the, the revelation of the Holy Spirit, Paul is then able to put everything and reveal the mysteries in the Old Testament into how they fit into the gospel. And so one, we're going to just take a little bit of a sidetrack and look here at one bit of Paul's theology that's firmly rooted in the Old Testament and why it's important and how we can apply it to our scripture. Are we learning anything tonight? Because this stuff really interests me. I'm sorry if it's a little bit boring, but this is the kind of stuff that I just, I, oh, I love it. I, 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 I was like shouting it at Lyric earlier yesterday and today. And, and I, she's, so she's, I apologize. You're hearing it again, <clears throat> again. But so, we're going to talk about the, um, the righteousness of God, okay? Now, that is something that we hear all the time in Pauline biblical literature. We hear about the righteousness of God, and we hear about, uh, and usually when we think of righteousness, we think of a moral compass, right? A, 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 that's pointed the right way. So if we have, if we live a righteous life, where we live a morally good life, or at least a life blameless in the eyes of God, and that's normally what we associate righteousness with. And that's not wrong. That's absolutely right. But the phrase "righteousness of God" has a little bit of a different tone. And there's there's a um, there's this. Wonderful article that I read uh, by a man named James Hardy Ropes, and he def- it's called "Righteousness and the Righteousness of God in the Old Testament and Saint Paul." And what he talks about is where Paul 
the the things that Paul says about the righteousness of God and righteousness and and where that's found in the Old Testament. And he kind of bridges this gap between the two and it helps us really shed light on the teachings of Paul and it opens up the New Testament in a way that just blows my mind. And one of the things that he talks about is that in the Old Testament, when when it mentions the righteousness of God, it's not, in a lot of places, particularly in the Psalms, and in Isaiah, and we can't go through all the examples because we don't have the time, and I'm sure you don't want to go verse by verse through the book of Isaiah. So, um, but the righteousness of God, oftentimes, especially in the book of Isaiah and Psalms, um, it was not in reference to God's moral standard, but rather it was his, what, what I'm calling his unmerited acts of salvation on behalf of his people. So when it talks about the righteousness of God, or literally in the Old Testament, the righteousnesses, plural, of God, it's referring to things that God did to rescue his people. And, it's, and, and the, the, the logic behind it is, you know, God is a righteous being, fully and innately righteous, and in the character of God being righteous, he has mercy and grace, and he has favor on his people. And so the righteousness of God, while yes, referring to his moral standard, goes deeper in the Old Testament. And when you really get into the Hebrew syntax, it goes deeper to explain that it's really talking about the way that God intervenes on behalf of his people and saves them. And so that is Old Testament theology. And we know what we just talked about, Paul was firmly rooted in Old Testament theology. So when we flip it and look into books of Philippians and the book of Romans, which we will look at in a minute, we see that Paul understood the righteousness of God to be more of a, this is how God rescues his people rather than this is how God acts. Does that make sense? Let's, let's put it into context here. So we'll, we'll go on, we'll, let's flip back to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll pick up in verse 7. But whatever I gain, I ha- but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So basically, verses 7 and 8, basic accounting. We, you have a gain and you have a loss column. And everything that Paul used to put in the gain column, I'm, a, I'm born of the nation of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Pharisee, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the law, this, 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 all those things that he used to count as a gain, he has now moved over into the loss column. And the only thing in the gain column is Christ to Paul. Everything else that he used to pride himself on, everything that he used, to, he used to boast in, has now been moved into the negative. This is a this goes against me, and the only thing for me, the only thing for me, is Christ. And he literally says, "I count them as rubbish." Another way to translate that word is poop. I count them all as dung. Literally, what Paul is saying: I count all of that stuff as defecation. And I, in order that I may gain Christ. I think that's so cool. So, uh, but let's get back to what we were talking about, Old Testament theology. And here we go. Now it's about to get a little deep. So stick with me. I'm going to try to do it, do this as best as I can to, to, uh, get this across. So in verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this, this phrase here, faith in Christ, has two possible translations. And it's weird to me in certain passages that the, a lot of translations will translate it as faith in Christ. So the, there's two ways this, this phrase that we translate oftentimes, faith in Christ, is can be translated in two ways, with a, a objective genitive, which would be faith in Christ. Our faith is in the object of Christ. 
but it can also be translated with the uh, possessive genitive, which would mean the faithfulness of Christ. Okay? And I know that that seems kind of what's the difference there, but it, it makes a really big difference when we put it back in the text, and we're going to do that in a second. But so the faithfulness of Christ, what do I mean when I say that? It's referring to Christ's faithful obedience to the plan of God in both life and in his death. So if we take faith in Christ and we sub out the other translation, we, it looks like this. It says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through, cross out faith in Christ, that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, and then again what we talked about the righteousness of God in Pauline theology, the unmerited saving grace of God on my behalf that depends on faith. Now why, and again this is, this is the MSISV, the Michael Searles International Standard Version, or the MISV, if you're familiar with that, which I hope you're not because I just made it up. But I hope I made it up. I hope I'm not stealing from somebody. But so let's let, we're going to break this down for a second. So Paul, in context, what has Paul been talking about this whole chapter? Where to boast in, okay? Whether we're boasting in me or boasting in Christ. And he says, originally, the... the Accepted translate or the not accepted. There is two. These are legitimate. I'm not just making this up. These are two legitimate translations. But the majority of English translations translated as but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Does that sound to anyone else a little bit redundant? He's saying it comes through faith and it depends on faith. Paul is never unnecessarily redundant. He does not waste space. Even when he may write books like Romans that are really, really long and really, really intricate, none of it is wasted. None of it is, is unnecessarily repeated or redundant. And so why, in the span of one verse, would he stress the importance of our faith? In one sentence, why would he do that? I would argue that he doesn't. He's not, he, the first portion is not faith in Christ, but rather the possessive genitive, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, because Paul's all about bragging on God and taking pride in Christ and rejoicing and having confidence in Christ. So I don't brag on the righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the unmerited saving grace of God on my behalf that depends on Christ, or it depends on my faith. Now that seems to start making a little bit more sense because he's, we're not talking about morality here. Paul's talking about his stance before God and who he can boast in. So talking about God's righteousness doesn't quite fit into this portion but when you, in terms of God's moral character, but when you look at it as his saving acts for his people, his intervening acts for his people, it makes a lot more sense that Paul's bragging on the faithfulness of Christ Jesus and the unmerited favor that he gets from the Lord that depends all on whether or not I believe. That makes a little bit more sense, if at least to me it does. There's another passage of scripture in Romans chapter three, verses 21 and 22, and it says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness, and this is again, watch for redundancy, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. What does it mean to have faith in something? It means that you believe in it. So why, in a matter of six words, would Paul talk about believing in something twice? It doesn't make sense. It's unnecessarily redundant. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Well, if I believe, I also have faith in. So let's look at the Mizvah version. But now the unmerited saving grace of God on my behalf has been manifested apart from the law. 
So the law originally was man's way to God, right? The, the Mosaic law, that was our way. But now, and that was, it was given by whom? God to man, right? But now, the unmerited saving grace of God on my behalf, and why I, why I say that is it was, the law was given by God with the purpose of, a, that was the covenant. It was the way to save the nation of Israel to set them apart. And so, again, but now the moral compass of God has been manifested apart from the law. That kind of makes sense, but in context of what Paul's saying, it makes a lot more sense if we look at it as the saving grace of God, the intervening of God on my behalf has now manifested itself apart from the law in Christ. Christ, the whole point of Christ coming to earth was to save us, right? And so the unmerited saving grace of God on my behalf has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it or to Christ and his sacrifice, the unmerited favor of God on my behalf through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. And I know this may sound like just kind of a silly debate on Greek grammar, but it really has huge theological implications when you look at what it's saying. Again, faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe is saying the same thing twice in a row. But when we say God has given his unmerited grace through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus for all who believe, it's a much more theologically heavy and thick verse. Does that make sense? And so when we look at these things about Paul and we understand where Paul was coming from and where his theology was based in, we get a much better understanding of Pauline theology. So that's a little, just a little lesson for you, a little Bible school lesson, a little, little Pauline theology 1302 for you right there. But so, so we just learned a, some pretty deep theological things, right? But why is that important? Why is understanding the theology of Paul? Is me knowing that Paul, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God, he's meaning the intervening acts, is that going to make me any more saved than if I just thought it was talking about God's moral compass? No. If we believe in Jesus and we believe in the cross and we have repented of our sins and accepted him as Savior, then we, we have become justified before God and, and we're, we're no more or less saved because of how much we know the Bible. But learning scripture begins to mature us and it begins to change us and it begins to stretch us. And the more that we learn of the word, the more that we learn about God. And so we have a couple, I have just a couple scriptures here. Colossians chapter one. And I actually, I have verse 10 here, but I'm gonna read uh, verse nine for a little context. For this reason, we we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding at 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. First um, Peter chapter two, verses one and two. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. These verses are talking about our spiritual growth, growing in the knowledge of, of Christ. And the only way to grow in the knowledge of anything is to gain that knowledge, is to learn things, to search out things. Paul wrote all of his, every book of Paul's in the New Testament is a letter to someone. The majority of those letters are to churches. Now, there's a little church that Paul visits in the book of Acts 
uh, or there's a little town, rather, that Paul visits in the book of Acts that is, it, the, the name of that small town is Berea. You may, you may recognize it from, and I'm blanking on the chapter in Acts, but Paul stops into this little city of Berea, and he preaches the gospel. And the Bible tells us that the Bereans said, okay, Paul, and I'm paraphrasing, okay, Paul, that sounds great, but you hold on. We're going to go and look in Scripture and see if what you're saying lines up with Scripture, and if what you say does line up with what we have Scripture-wise, then we'll listen to more of you and we'll accept this Jesus that, that you're preaching. And the Bereans go, they, they look and look and look and say, hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Let's listen to him. And you know what? We never hear another peep out of the Berean church. Paul writes, no, at least we have no letters. He might have written letters, but we have no letters of Paul to the Berean church. Did you know that most of the letters that Paul wrote were oftentimes chastising the churches because of things they were doing wrong? And yet we don't have a letter to the Bereans. Why? Well, we can't know this for sure, but I think it might have something to do with the fact that the Bereans were learners. They were studiers of the word. They, they didn't take anything for granted. They heard what Paul said and checked that with the word of God. And when they heard that, they, they realized it all matched up, they realized, okay, maybe there's something to it. And their, their root was in scripture. They knew it. They understood it. They studied it. And so that, unlike other churches, we, we don't have any letters to the Berean church because, in my opinion, they didn't need one because they were students of the word. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And I'm just going to go ahead and read this. It's a little bit long, but it's really good. And I've highlighted certain words, and I'll try to stress that in my reading. His divine power has granted to us all the things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with the virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. All throughout scripture, whether it's Paul, whether it's Peter, whether it's Jesus, whether it's the Old Testament writers, Growing in knowledge, growing in faith, growing in wisdom, growing in knowledge of the Lord is not just encouraged, but commanded. Learning scripture, understanding the authors and the context in which they were writing and the God of which they were writing about is so important. Knowledge of the Holy One should be our greatest pursuit as Christians. If we are not growing in knowledge, we are waning in knowledge. Did you know, and I, I meant to look up the study, and uh, I read it a couple years ago, and I can't remember where it was from, but this study said that if you were to read for one hour a day for a whole year, so for 365 days, you just read one hour a day in a specific field, you would become an international expert in that field. Just reading one hour per day in a specific field can make you more knowledgeable than 99% of the world. If we as Christians were to study the words of God in Scripture an hour a day, just, I mean, and, and, and that's, a, that's, that's a lot. I'm not saying it's 10 minutes or anything. Finding an hour in the busyness of work and sleep and family, that can be, that can be tough, you know, we... We, some of us don't even watch an hour of TV per day, um, which I know, you know, TV versus the Bible, clearly one should be more important. But it's easy just to come home from work and sit on the couch and turn on Netflix and just watch until you fall asleep. It's, it's easy to do that. It's a way to relax, and I get that. But what I'm saying is if, if we could just spend one hour a day 
If you could find a way to spend one hour a day for just one year and learn the things of God, it could completely change the way that you understand Scripture, the way that you understand the bride, and the way that you understand ministry to the bride, but most importantly, the way that you understand God. And that is what it's all about. So this whole idea of putting first things first, learning about who God is, should be of primary importance. Because if we don't know who God is, we don't know who love is. Because as we know in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, God is love. And we only love because he loved us first. And when we know him, we, Michelle and I were just talking about uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 16-ish in there, and I love it. It says, when we, when we live in God, we live in love, and we grow in love, and we learn to love, and then our love becomes more perfected when we learn the things of God. When we live in him and we learn him, the, see, the Bible is his love letter to us. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's how he tells us he loves us. It's how he proves to us that he loves us. You can read the Bible every single day. You can read the same chapter every single day, and every single day hear something different from the Lord because it's a love letter. It's a living, breathing love letter from God to man. And when we search that out and we, we desire that and we delight in that, from a scriptural standpoint, from a biblical standpoint, we delight in those things. It changes the whole of the way that we think, and we begin, to, we begin to grow in knowledge, and we begin to understand the fullness of what the gospel is and how to, to share the gospel with the world. If we could just harness a little bit of Paul's zeal, a little bit of Paul's passion, we could change the world. If, I mean, Paul was one guy. There's how many of us in this room? 15, 20 people in this room? If each of us just got one twentieth of the zeal that Paul had, when we learn about it in Scripture, we could go out and change the world, just like Paul did. Paul was a great man, but God is no respecter of persons. There's nothing that Paul had or Paul did that we couldn't have or do. We just have to do what Paul did to get that. And how do, we, how do we do that? We learn. We dive into Scripture, and we study, and we search. And so putting learning, not just of Scripture, but also of God, but they're really the same thing. When we learn Scripture, we learn God. And when we put him first, everything else kind of comes together. Amen? Uh, that didn't take quite as long as I thought. So I actually have a little something else to teach you guys tonight, if that's all right. It won't take very long. Love, will you hand me my Bible right there? If you'll open up your Bibles to the book of Genesis. I was reading in Genesis today, and I thought of this, and I thought, oh, this would be a fun little fact to throw out. But uh, I didn't know if I'd have time. I didn't know how long that would all take. So I didn't put it in my notes. I wanted to have the numbers and everything up on the screen. But like I said, I didn't know where to put it because I didn't want to put it in the middle and then run out at the end. But I didn't want to like put it at the end and not get to it. I just, it was weird. So we're going to look at, uh, start in chapter 5 we're of Genesis. We're looking here uh, at the descendants of Adam from Adam all the way till Noah. And we read down, so-and-so had so-and-so, so-and-so had so-and-so. And then we get down to Enoch, and we know that he, he um, lived for 365 years, walking in close fellowship until the day that he, God took him. That's all we know. It doesn't say everybody else says that he, they died, but Enoch just got taken. So that's kind of cool. But uh, Enoch had a son named Methuselah. And we, most of us probably have heard the name Methuselah, and, and if you haven't, Methuselah is the oldest recorded human being ever. He lived 969 years, that's more than any other human being has ever been claimed to have been, okay? So Methuselah uh, has, has Lemek, and then Lemek has Noah. And of course we know Noah 
built the ark, had all the animals, all this stuff. Well, okay, so Enoch was 65 years old when he became the father of Methuselah. When Methuselah was 187 years old, he became the father of Lemek. When Lemek was 182 years old, he became uh, the father of a son, and he named his son Noah. And by the time Noah was 500 years old, he had a couple sons. Fast forward, Noah gets the call from God. He starts building the ark, and it says that Noah was 600 years old when the flood covered the earth. Now, this is really, this is kind of cool. So stick with me. I promise, reading these numbers, a lot of times we just read right over them. But when you stop and look at it, there's a lot of cool stuff in, in the Bible when, when you look at things like this. So for instance, Noah was 600 years old when the floods covered the earth. If you go back and do all the addition, and like I said, I would have had the numbers on the screen. Test, don't just believe me. Go home and add it up yourself. But the year that the flood came would have been the same year that Methuselah died, okay? Now, whether he died in the flood or not, we don't know, um, but I'm going to say that wasn't the fact. Methuselah, the name Methuselah means when I die, judgment comes. That's literally what his name means. When I die, judgment comes. Of course, we know that the flood was the judgment of God on the earth for wickedness, right? We, we know that because Genesis chapter 6 and 7 tells us that. Well, here's something interesting. Who did we say Methuselah was? The oldest man to ever live. God knew that when Methuselah died, the, the judgment would come. And so God allowed Methuselah, the bringer of judgment, to live longer than any other human being in history. We always think of Old Testament God as this God of wrath and this God of judgment, and New Testament God as God of mercy and God of grace. There is no more no possible grace than in God's judgment here. God is showing, because he let, he said, okay, Methuselah is born, when this guy dies, I'm going to kill everybody on the earth. And he gave Methuselah, the longest lifespan of anyone else, he put off his judgment as long as possible to give the people, not, and not even his people, but the, the wicked, to give them more time to possibly turn their lives around. And so even in judgment, we can see God's grace. And I just think that it's the coolest thing ever. You may disagree, but I think that's really cool because it's just, it's cool. And there's a bunch of, there's a, a ton of stuff that if you really, if you read and you study, I'm not saying that anybody in here doesn't read their Bibles, but when we really study and we look at things and we, we ask the Lord to reveal sig- things like significance and things, get yourself a study Bible. I'm telling you, my understanding of, of God's word and of God just, whew, blew up exponentially when I just got a study Bible. And it's not that, you know, this any certain one is better than the other, but it's literally written by men and women who have dedicated their lives to learning the original languages and looking for cultural context in different things. And it just reveals things on, a, on such a deeper level, and it really lets you understand, you know, when, whenever you read something that just seems out of place or seems insignificant, Maybe there was a reason for that, but we don't know that because we weren't around in 800 BC in the you know, ancient Near East. We weren't there, so we don't understand that, you know, like in the book of Isaiah, when this guy was punished because he built himself a tomb in the rocks, and we, we, read, we read right over Isaiah chapter 22 because what's that have to do with us? Okay, the guy built a home in a rocks. Why, why is that bad? Why is he being punished? Why is he being wiped off the face of the earth? Well, in the ancient Near East context, you understood that the building a tomb, an individual tomb for yourself, was a pagan tradition. And it was in complete violation of the cultural 
understandings that God had passed down to his people. And so you understand why this higher up in the the Israel government, the Judean government, why he would be punished so severely because he was performing a pagan ritual for his, you know, for himself. And but you don't understand that when you just read Isaiah because none of us were around in, you know, 7th 8th century BC ancient Near East. And so it just, it'll open up your minds. I'm sorry, I'm starting to ramble, um, but I just love to learn, uh, and I think you should too. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we come before you right now. Lord, we ask that you will open up our understanding for your word like never before, Lord Jesus. As we give of our time and begin to pursue knowledge of you, Lord, we ask that you will just blow up our understanding. Lord God, will you begin to pour into us new revelations, new wisdom, new knowledge, Lord God? Will you begin to open up our understanding to know you more through your scriptures? We desire to put you first, Jesus. Lord, as we are in the month of January refocusing, we ask, Lord, that you will be at the center of that focus and that we will begin to study you. We will begin to search you out, Lord Jesus. We desire to know more, more of your word and more about you, Lord Jesus. Will you you lead us? Will you guide us? Lord God, will you give us divine wisdom in reading? And will you help us to understand how to utilize our knowledge, Lord God? Because knowledge without action is worthless. Lord, so will you not only teach us and enlighten us, but will you show us and give us divine strategy on how to use this knowledge to bring the kingdom of God on earth? Lord, we desire you. We boast in you, Lord Jesus. We don't want to be Saul running around zealous and fighting against the very thing that we are trying to bring onto earth. God, we want to be Paul with a renewed focus, with a divine focus, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.